Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. On Commons People this week, the country is officially in a Brexit crisis. Incompetence failure and intransigence from the Prime Minister and her government have brought us to this point. Theresa May puts her premiership on the line. As Prime Minister, I am... I am not prepared to delay Brexit any further than the 30th of June. And EU leaders consider a request to delay Britain's exit. In any case, the European Council will need to assess what is in the best interest of the EU. We're recording this week's Commons People podcast in the office of Conservative MP Rob Halfon. Uh, Apologies for the interruptions and the sound quality. It's in the oldest part of the Palace of Westminster, but I hope you can uh, enjoy it as atmosphere. Hello and welcome to Commons People. I'm Arj Singh. Uh, Joining me today is Paul Waugh. Hi Arj. Hi Paul. Also with us is the Conservative MP and ex-minister Rob Halfon. Hello there. Hi, Rob. And Nikki DaCosta is also here, uh, Senior Counsel at Cicero and also Theresa May's former Director of Legislative Affairs. Hello. Hi. Um, So we've just had an extraordinary Prime Minister's Questions in which Theresa May has announced she's seeking a short delay to Brexit and also put her premiership on the line. Now, let's just hear from her deputy, David Liddington, saying last week that a short delay would be reckless if a deal hadn't passed the Commons. Mr Speaker, in the absence of a deal, seeking such a short and critically one-off extension would be downright reckless and completely at odds with the position this House adopted only last night, making a no-deal scenario far more rather than less likely. Not only that, Mr Speaker... But from everything we've heard from the EU, both in public and in private, it is a proposal they would not accept. Now, I'm going to give way to my... Paul, what's going on? (laughs) Um, Well, that quote from David Liddington was kind of telling, wasn't it? Here's the guy who actually has been in in the wars for the PM, you know, through the last few years, and he's the guy who knows Europe like the back of his hand. That's precisely why he's promoted to replace... Damien Green in that effective deputy PM role. He knows everything. He knows the way the negotiations are going to work in Brussels. He knows what you can get away with. He also knows what you can get away with across Whitehall and within the party. And David Liddington last week made it absolutely clear there was some kind of strategy, which was, you know, you couldn't possibly have a short delay um, without an agreement. It would be reckless. And yet, that's precisely what the PM has kind of hinted at today. Um, And... I'm still not sure whether there is a strategy or whether there ever was a strategy. Um, I always thought that she was just quite rightly wanting to just eke out every day and every week as it comes. And ultimately, maybe this is sort of, there's method in the madness. Maybe ultimately we can get onto this. But by doing what she's done today, effectively saying, look, I will quit 
unless um, there is an if there's an extension up to uh, June 30, it's fine. But I'll quit if we if Brexit is extended beyond that. Maybe the method in that is to put the ball firmly in Labour's court at last and to to narrow the choice, this forced choice finally, which he's always wanted people to to make their minds up, and it will help her next week to say, look, it is effectively me and this deal or me going and no deal and that will scare the heck out of Labour and it might help her I mean give her a bit of credit but maybe I shouldn't I don't know Rob uh, well uh, maybe it's as cunning as all that uh, <laughs> and uh, perhaps she's the greatest poker player that we've uh, but I have a feeling it's more down to the fact that uh, even people like me who voted Remain I wouldn't have voted for a long extension because unfortunately people see it as a Trojan horse for a second referendum yeah. which I'm implacably opposed to because it would lead to huge mistrust in our political system and I can just about accept a short delay and actually there is a strategy because if you have Common Market 2.0 which I'm sure we're going to talk about <laughs> we can get that done and dusted by June and July um, so you could have it um, but um I think it's really the reality is that half the cabinet won't accept a long delay, most of the Tory party won't accept it and you won't have a government, you won't have a party left if uh, a long delay was, uh, if that's something she pushed through the House of Commons, I just can't see uh, see it being supported. I mean the anger from the fellow MPs at the moment, the frustration, it is a miserable place, the House of Commons. A really miserable place. It's not a, 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 we talk about Groundhog Day all the time, but Groundhog Day at least had a happy ending. This, uh, you just can't see any end to it. Uh, it's, it's. Uh, I think it's, uh, it's more alien than Groundhog Day. <laughs> <laughs> Is she Sigourney Weaver? <laughs> we'll leave that there. Yeah. It's Brexit the alien. Um, Nikki, is there a strategy? Has there been a strategy? Number 10 is famously tactical, uh, and certainly when I was in number 10, I was, I was, you know, I come from a public affairs background where the number one thing we always say to our clients is, what's the objective, what's the strategy to get there, who do you need to bring with you? Um, I was stunned when I was there to find how much, I mean, everyone said it for a very long time, how much is driven by the media cycle, how much is in the 24-hour cycle, um, the challenge you have even to get, you know, when, when I used to raise things that are a fortnight, a month out, uh, that would often be re with a little bit of, of resistance. So I, I can't categorically say that there is a strategy, other than the difficulty is, is when there are so many limited options, and it seems, you know, and you're trying to keep both sides of the party together. You just keep plugging at it and hope that something changes. And uh, that just seems to be the consistent strategy. The problem is it's, it's, it's excruciating for people to go with because they don't know that it's actually going to work. And that leads to everyone feeling very, uh, very tense, um, very anxious and, and, and not necessarily certain as to how to continue. Rob, are we now staring down the barrel of no deal? Because what incentive do the Brexiteers in your party have to vote for the deal next week if there's not going to be a longer delay and they might get rid of the Prime Minister? I, I think that um, it's just impossible to know. The Brexiteers, seem, the hardcore Brexiteers, seem to support what the Speaker did because they thought that it led to a no deal. I think it is, means it's more likely that there, there isn't a... We don't, we leave, that we do leave with a deal. And that I think what the speaker has done has helped, in essence, delay, uh, which is one of the reasons why we're in what the, the events that happened today. Um, but I think it's impossible. It's just impossible to know. I really, I really can't see 
which way it could go. There is still, I would say, a 40% chance we're going to leave with a no deal. I think, But I think it's 40% because overwhelmingly the majority of the House of Commons doesn't want to leave without a deal. It, but it does seem odd, doesn't it, if you're the Prime Minister? You've suddenly removed a big you know, um, fear factor for the Brexiteers, haven't you? I mean, effectively, you've, you were threatening them to say, actually, well, I could have this long, long extension. That was supposed to be the part of the game plan. Yeah, but That's to have, gone. Yes, but to have, a, if it's an extension to June or July... Um, I think you still have to have some. First of all, we've got, we still don't know if Europe are going to agree. Yeah. Secondly, I think it has to be done by SI, but you would know all about this. Yes, it's a mix of things. Uh, yeah, yeah. Um, the, the, very quickly, in international law, all it requires is the EU27 and the UK as a member state to agree it. That basically changes the, the, the treaty situation. Uh, to make sure our statute books match, then you need an SI to make sure that we haven't you know, just accidentally repealed the ECA, um, sw- you know, taken a sh- snapshot of what we call the key um, uh, all on the 29th of March and basically made an entire mess of, of the law books. Um, so the two things go hand in hand, but the SI is not necessary in order to do the extension. But so politically, it's necessary. But yes, yeah, politically, yes, yeah. politically. But if, but if that gets, yeah. so that would probably get voted through, given the majority of the House oh, voted for a deal last week. So then we will, whatever happens, we'll get an extension. So I think it doesn't necessarily stop a no deal happening. It probably s- makes it more likely that what well, gives a the chance of the, sorry, the Prime Minister has a better chance of bringing her deal through and it getting passed, which is still touch and go, but possibly more likely than before because pragmatic Brexiteers, there'll be more of them, I would estimate they type, uh, mm. uh, Philip Davis, even, you know, Nigel Evans, those kind of people will vote for the deal on those grounds that they worried about a delay. What about the PM's tactics, though? I mean, you might know this, Nikki. In terms of the, the sequencing next week, would it make more sense for her to have the SI voted on before the meaningful vote or the other way around? Well, actually, it's not actually in her control. Yeah. Um, and there's a bit of a debate at this moment. The SI can only follow what's in the Article 50 process and what's been agreed there. So if actually the EU have only signed off in principle but not formally, uh, the SI has to wait until after that formal decision. So if it is, there's a rumour at the moment of mm. an emergency summit on the 28th, then actually you'd have to have that decision and then bounce it straight into to the Commons and, and to the Lords then. So uh, actually the sequencing of the SI is actually set out in law and she doesn't have control of that. Right, so it's more likely we'll get a meaningful vote what before then Monday so. or Tuesday. Yeah. yeah, that's interesting. And you, you only need what a ninety-minute debate in both houses, yeah, don't you? Yeah, ninety minutes. You could in do both. it. You could do it quite quickly in one day, possibly. Yes, um, you usually you'd lay it the night before. Yeah. So you'd lay the SI um, in the Commons. It would be just schedule ninety minutes on the floor of the Commons. In the Lords, it would usually go to a, a committee that looks at statutory instruments. But that's it's set out in standing orders. The Lords could waive that. Um, so again, you'd just do a ninety-minute slot uh, in the Lords. And again, as, as Robert said, because of the numbers, that will go through in both houses. But you could, and if the house isn't sitting on Friday the 29th, worst case scenario, uh, you're laying that SI on the night of the 28th and voting it on the 29th. I'm sorry. Uh, I just want to flag that. That's incredible, isn't it, really? Um, and there's another side to all this, which is the EU. I mean, Paul, how do you think the EU is going to react to this request, this letter to Donald Tusk that the Prime Minister's sent? Well, we're recording this on the first what Wednesday and we'll find out on on Thursday night I suspect or maybe even before then whether or not Europe has has coalesced around a position there's lots of different positions unusually at the moment um the French playing hardball Germans are being a bit more uh, emollient um and it's, it's quite interesting that 
Angela Merkel is bending over backwards to help the PM in, in her language all throughout the week, um, but as the French aren't. And, uh, but I suspect there will, as ever, come to a, a coherent position that represents all of them. And then, who knows, it's perfectly within their gift just to say, actually, we don't want you to have this you know, short extension. You know, really, we've always said we want clarity. You're not giving us any clarity. Um, then, I suppose, all that's happened is that Burko has effectively chucked from this week events to next week. Is that's effectively what might have happened? Um, you know, you've, you've you've given me the segue into ah. the next section of the podcast. Don't which is you do want R thirty nine being quid. Well, there you go, Rob. Yeah, I know. That's the incentive. But I they don't want us to, want to, to tip into their their budget setting after next yeah, spring either, do they? No, that's true. But they still want thirty nine billion. It's a lot of money. <laughs> we, we've got to pay anyway, don't we? Even if we, we have to pay some of it, and this is a big been a big debate that according to the House of Lords we don't know anything um, the House of Lords committee this has a big been a big bugbear for me over the time um, and uh, uh, I ex- accept that we have to pay something but I don't think it's I think she's agreed though so I believe if you in fact if you read the Tim Shipman books there's uh, uh, bits in there where she sort of says well we don't have to say, even the Prime Minister seems to indicate in early parts of the negotiation that we don't have to pay anything and they've agreed They've gone out from 100 billion to 39 billion. So I, I do think, I also think, although a no deal would be pretty disastrous for us, I also don't think it would be great for the EU either, um, given that we have a huge trade deficit with them, cause havoc everywhere. And so I do think there is an incentive, although we're, uh, sadly, I think we're a bit of a laughing stock at the moment. It looks like a shambles, um, a euro shambles. Um, I do think that. Um, there is an incentive for them to give us some kind of concession uh, because of the havoc. And now, Paul, you, you, you touched on this, but Common Speaker John Burko kick-started this entire mess earlier this week by blocking the Prime Minister's plans to hold another vote on her deal. Um, let's listen to the Speaker explaining his decision. If the government wishes to bring forward a new proposition that is neither the same nor substantially the same as that disposed of by the House on the 12th of March, this would be entirely in order. What the government cannot legitimately do is to resubmit to the House the same proposition or substantially the same proposition as that of last week, which was rejected by 149 votes. Nikki, <laughs> is John Burko a constitutional vandal or a staunch defender of Parliament? Oh, um, look, I, I would have said so. I, I find him quite difficult, and that's on on the record. I would have said that um, prior to December, November, I would say whilst he was deeply, deeply annoying to government, he operated largely within the rules. So yes, it's probable that he gave a strong hint to Labour as to how to use a humble address and probably slid a piece of paper across and said that's quite interesting. Um, For those that don't know, the humble address basically allowed them to weaponise opposition days and force the government to to give papers over. Um, You know, he he summoned ministers, granted UQs, I think we're starting to average one UQ a day, similarly on emergency debates. So, but all of that is legitimate. Uh, what we've seen more recently is a trend basically of saying, actually, uh, where I don't want the rules to apply, they won't apply. So, for example, allowing uh, an amendment from Dominic Grieve to change uh, what's what's possible and throw that effect forward month after month. Um, and then more recently, just, just this week, and basically then, then he's gone, 
um, sorry, early in the year saying precedent in the letter, you know, we can change precedent. It's, you know, I'm not bound by that. It's up to me as as, an, as speaker. And then, but this week, a very lengthy um, exposition on Erskine May, the historic precedent, etc. To me, that reads as partiality. Um, uh, a, a lovely phrase given to me by a former SPAD recently was, he is consistently inconsistent. Um, <laughs> and as such, I would say, yes, he, he, he does vandalise. And the fact that Betty Boothroyd is quite scathing in her assessment uh, forget about whether what the government thinks or conservatives think take the last speaker who really did have huge respect both in parliament and the country and she thinks that he's not particularly uh, impartial i mean it's interesting when i go to my constituents back in harlow who think by the way everyone's trying to stop brexit from the speaker to the establishment mm. Um, when I say, oh, yeah, but it's from 1604, they don't suddenly say, oh, that's all right then. Right? <laughs> um, uh, and I did actually say to the Speaker in the debate, if you're going to do it for this, then you've got to stop a second referendum coming back because we had a vote on the second referendum, got overwhelmingly rejected. Um, and he said, well, it will depend on the circumstances at the time. It's, uh, and it seems to me that everything is going to be based on circumstances. So we don't know, really, because if he is uprooting Preston, he's basically uprooting Preston and saying everything is on circumstance, but circumstances could be just quite revolutionary. Um, uh, it's sort of very Robespierre-like in, in some ways, and I don't want you now to put a headline, Robert Halvon calls the Speaker Robespierre because I do want to get called again in the House of Commons. Um, but it's it's quite revolutionary. Uh, and um, I, I I think it plays into... I mean, I was uh, I live in my constituency. I genuinely... It's my only house that I have... <laughs> Um, you are a neutral role. It is toxic. Yeah. I mean, a very leave constituency, 68% voted to leave. I voted remain, but I promised I would do everything possible to make Brexit happen, although I believe in the EFTA version. I've done everything possible in terms of my voter record on the whole. I, this was the worst weekend in terms of the way the public are thinking, because I get stopped in the street and they're just angry, disillusioned with all of us. We are going back to the expenses scandal. Right. I think we're not there yet, but I think the if it carries on like this, these people voted to leave. They were they are left behind. They're struggling with the cost of living. They're struggling with austerity. They just don't have enough money in their pockets, and they work very hard. It's not like they're sitting on the couch all day getting benefits, and they felt left behind for a number of reasons. So they wanted to take back control, which is why the leave the moderate leave campaign was so successful. I'm not talking about the hardcore one. And they feel that we are letting them down by what is going on. All of us, Labour, Tories, everything. And they are really angry. The public in my constituency of Harlow is 26 miles away from Palace of Westminster. It's another world from here. And uh, they are really angry. There was a massive divide between town and metropolitan. And um, I don't think the metropolitan areas understand, metropolitan politicians understand what's going on in the towns up and down our country. And I am really worried about that because I think if, there, if that disillusionment holds, because Brexit is a huge disruptor, you will have Tommy Robinsons in Parliament, not just one of them. And it doesn't matter whether it's first past the post or PR, these people are going to get in. Because where else people are going to say they've been let down by the establishment, let down by Parliament, whether it's, the, as I say, whether it's the Speaker, whether it is um, uh, the government, whether it is the Labour Party, doesn't matter. Whether, they voted for to leave, and for some reason, they they don't know about meaningful votes and mm. SIs, which we've just been talking about. What they feel is that we're not we're not delivering, and that is toxic. 
but, is really toxic. Rob, That's why I'm so opposed to a second referendum. The curious thing about everything you've just said is that a lot of the, the, the Brexiteers, Bill Cash, Jacob Rees-Mogg, all buy everything you've just said, but and, and they've got you know very, very long-established roots on this subject, and yet they agreed with Burkow. They liked the Burkow ruling. Now, does that is that because he played into? I wrote this week. He, it was he, perhaps it was canny, but on his part, he played into the constitutional vanity of people like Bill Cash, who think they know the constitution, think of themselves as constitutional Tories, great parliamentarians. And was he just playing to that vanity what? and saying, actually, yeah, look, trust me, I'm putting Parliament first? And they they kind of put to one side everything you've just said. So there was a romanticism amongst some of the hardcore Brexiteers about the Constitution. It's one of the reasons why they're Brexiteers in the first place, because yeah. they believe. And I think it's actually, to be fair to them, I, it is honourable. I, I, um, but, but what I think actually, that's not what's driving this, is that those people are desperate to leave no deal. And everything they've done, even you know, going this malt house thing, which was never going to be uh, chosen by European Union, and, you know, ever going to be a reality is all really let's get closer and closer we're about to leave with a no deal now although I voted to keep no deal on the table because I feel I owe that to my constituents I'm really against a no deal I've made that clear I've written it down in articles yours for the half posters yep. and, and other things um, I really worry about it because I've also had letters from my constituents from small businesses who are involved in the supply chain small chemical companies for example they're not part of the referendum campaign or any political thing but they are really worried and I also normal members of the public and small other small business really worried if we leave with no deal so on one side I've got the economic calamity of a no deal potentially I hope I'm wrong and it's all this wonderful heaven that they will say and the political calamity of a second referendum and that is what we're facing that's why things to me are quite grim I should point out at this stage we're sat in Rob's office, which is just next door to the Speaker's house because he lives here in Parliament. Do you, does he pop round for, a, house. For, a, for borrow some sugar? Or uh, sadly not. No, I do yeah. get on very well with him. Um, uh, I, I can't work out the decision he's made about this. I really can't. Um, but the thing is, it's like when people say to me, "Oh, isn't President Trump terrible?" or whatever it is. I say it's completely the wrong question. The question they should be asked is why are people voting yeah. for President Trump and what are you going to do about it? What, and the same thing happens whether the Speaker's made a right decision or wrong decision is absolutely immaterial. The decision's been made, he's the referee, there's nothing we can do about it. So the government should come up with some solutions and they better bring back a meaningful vote that the Speaker recognises next week, otherwise we're all in the soup. Mm. Now, Nicky, did, did you note that actually Chris Bryant said that last week when he even floated this idea of of um, using this 1604 precedent that the Prime Minister came up to him after his speech and congratulated him on his speech um, and said uh, how very well done he'd done and he withdrew it, at the, withdrew it at the time. So what's quite odd is that the front bench was so shocked by Burko's announcement this week when actually they had an early warning last week, didn't they? I think, I think in terms, certainly in terms of the reports I saw of what the Prime Minister said, it, I don't think it was necessarily congratulations of the week, but gratitude that he had pulled the yeah. amendment. Yeah. I actually think it would have been helpful for that amendment to be voted on, and I'm yeah. feeling the reason why it, there was a lot of rumour saying it was a speaker put up job anyway as an amendment, because actually if it had been defeated, which was strongly likely, yeah. then actually that would have demonstrated that the will of the House was that you would continue to have meaningful votes. So actually it was unhelpful for the government that that was pulled. Um, 
in terms of, yes, look, the government knew it could happen and we've been aware for a long time of the same session, same question aspect. It can be overridden, though, and certainly the advice of the previous clerk of the House was that, you know, it's not there to get in the way. Um, similarly, you know, if you could prove that it was, you know, that there, there was strong political appetite for it, then that would be OK. Um, so in many ways, I think the shock is this, is that I think people keep on wanting to think the speaker will operate as previous speakers have. They, I know I had a colleague say to me, no, 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 surely he wouldn't do it. What on earth would convince him to do it? It's like because it allows him, I'm sorry, it allows him centre stage. He loved that moment of basically letting it be known that 3.30 he would give a statement. Mm. He loved not giving anyone any notice of it. He was, you know, the the Brexit, um, you know, uh, um, you know, I don't know, villain? I'm going to go for villain. Um, you know, blocker at that moment. Uh, and so I think for him, you know, this this is the end game. You know, if there is another general election, I think he won't be speaker again, even if he were to even if he were to be elected and to stand, because there's a difference. MPs have protected him despite the bullying allegations, despite the harassment, because they view that having him there is to their interests, often from the Labour side, and therefore he can't be ousted. However, not ousting him is very different from voting him back into office and saying, actually, we endorse you for a third uh, session, and that is very different. So I think this is his end game, and therefore there's no, there's nothing to lose. Yeah, I think uh, absolutely right. Mind you, the curious thing is we wouldn't even be talking about this whole idea of changing the exit date if the government hadn't put the exit date in the legislation. Now, you probably remember that whole episode. Yes. Isn't it true that actually, basically, this was a ruse by Number 10 to give the t Sunday Telegraph a headline on one Sunday, which is they came under pressure from a few people saying, actually, we need a committed exit date. And they went, OK, let's write it into the law. We're going to say March 29. And that's how it happened. Whereas everyone else around the PM, the smart people, were saying, don't put it in legislation. Give ourselves some flexibility. I look, I think you've got to remember that the entire passage of the EU Withdrawal Act, which is what this comes down to, was essentially uh, a long-running battle with many, many concessions given to the dominant Greek group. So essentially, time and time again, the Brexiteers were basically asked, look, just stay quiet. Yeah. Can you just swallow with this one more thing, one more thing, one more thing? And to be frank, my experience of that side of the party was actually they behaved impeccably. Um, you know, when the meaningful vote was going through, etc., um, despite what we knew, we knew this meaningful vote was never ever about Parliament having a role. It was about creating exactly the situation which we're in, which was basically an unholy alliance with the Remain ultras, who everyone forgets are still voting against the deal as well, mm. and those sort of Brexiteer ultras, so that a deal could never get through increasing the chances, therefore, of undoing Brexit. So the only thing I'd say about that is every single moment the Prime Minister kept saying, we're going to leave on March 29th yeah. for two years. She didn't need to repeat it at every moment. They could have rode back from it slightly. Uh, and she just said, no, we're going to leave on March 29th. No deal's better than a bad deal. All this March 29th, March 29th. And so it got into the minds of the public. It was said at the election... Uh, and so on. So well, maybe Nikki's right that it was actually a concession to the Brexiteers who'd swallowed so much about the grieve concessions. And um, isn't that really where it all started? December 2017, that famous front page of the Telegraph. It, it, here's the mutineers. Um, when actually the people who the Tories who voted for the grieve amendment set in place everything we've seen today, which is we we've got a meaningful vote. We wouldn't even had a meaningful vote, but for that grieve amendment, would we? No. We would be talking about the legislation with the role, role agreement bill, wouldn't we? Um, There's a lot of anger about Dominic. Is that right? Yeah, there's a lot. Interesting. Um, I, was, I was saying upstairs, uh, or uh, saying every parliament, I really like Nick Bowles, I'm working from 
I think our party needs a Bowles as much as they need as a Boris. And uh, the, even the kind of hardcore people were saying, yeah, and then, but they say not with Dominic. So, which was interesting mm. because they they think he is responsible for this. Maybe he's a Robespierre. <laughs> Maybe. Yeah. Well, now, we, despite Burko's ruling, it looks like we're going to get another meaningful vote next week. The government's going to find a way around it, <clears throat> get some extra documents from Brussels that will allow a tweaking of the motion. Um, but here is Theresa May's nemesis, the Labour MP Yvette Cooper, begging the PM to rethink her approach. The Prime Minister still has to ask the EU to agree to something. And at the moment, all she's asking anybody to agree to is the same plan that she has put to this House twice and that has been roundly defeated twice. Why will she not just open up, just think again, just allow the indicative votes that others have put forward? Because what she is doing by sticking to this failed plan is deeply dangerous for our country in the national interest. I beg this Prime Minister to think again. So, Paul, is the deal going to pass next week? <laughs> That's the big question. Um, it's, it, it's down to two things. Will that hardcore of the ERG, will it shrink enough for the number of Labour MPs to, who could outweigh them? Um, make that credible and get it over the line for the PM. I'm not sure about that. The second thing is Labour's formal front bench position. I can see, I know it sounds mad, but you can see a situation where the Labour Party have said repeatedly their number one priority is to stop no deal. Number one priority. And if you're ranking things in terms of priority and you're left with two options, it's no deal or May's deal, will they abstain on the main motion? I know it sounds crazy, uh, and the PM would love it. Um, it would get Corbyn out of jail because he could say, "Oh, actually, I've not endorsed May and May's awful Brexit, but equally, I've not, you know, uh, facilitated it um, in any other way." I don't know. Um, I know that sounds a bit crazy because Jeremy Corbyn's USP is not abstaining on things; it's opposing, 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 and there'd be a massive Labour split and backlash with his own party if they were to abstain. But I don't know. I've just chucked that out there as an idea. I don't the, know. the EU would have to help in that regard by by not agreeing to an extension yeah. before the meaningful vote or even signalling yeah. to, to, to create that scenario. Yeah. Um, Nikki and Rob, I suppose, if you if, if you were in number 10 right now, how would you be strategising how to get this deal through? When would you have it? How would you do it? Well, the thing I never understand is why, you probably know this more than me, haven't you, why on earth in the first time the DUP weren't brought on board all the things they're doing with the DUP now why didn't that happen six months ago uh, why weren't, weren't people like Ian Duncan Smith who's crucial to this moderate Brexit here very principled uh, someone I have a lot of admiration for why wasn't he brought in to do it all from the beginning you know from rather than <coughs> at this last minute five minutes to midnight <coughs> um, I, the, one the interesting thing about the Telegraph now I may have read that letter wrong by the ER, hardcore ERGers which was about 23 I mm, think yeah. they didn't say they were going to vote against the deal They, unless I read it they You're said right. they would never support this so yeah. I'm not sure if some of some of them might abstain um, I think Labour I think you could actually get more Labour people this time voting for it if they think there's a chance that the Prime Minister you know there's some in Labour MPs in, in seats like mine uh, where people are very uh, leavers and want it done so uh, I would give a 30-40% of it passing um, this time this time round uh, you know 
people like Charles Walker, Brexit, hard, you know, he's a serious Brexiteer, but really serious. He has a lot of friends and influence in the party. He wants it to pass. Um, so if the DUP and Ian are satisfied, and if a few of the ERGs abstain, the hardcore 23, mm. uh, and if you get 20 to 30 Labour MPs, the only thing I disagree with you on, why I may be wrong, is that I think at the end of the day, Labour Party under Corbyn wants to kill us, and they want anarchy. And I think you're right about that. And so they want a, a disaster, chaotic Brexit, don't they? So by and it will be blamed for it, not them. And by uh, if they vote, if they vote or abstain and let it go through easily, that is a nice pass for the government. And hopefully, my, maybe things might get back on track. But so why on earth are they going to do that? Yeah, these are not Blair people. They want to kill us. They want Tories out. They will do anything. They'll be out there, as I say, they're like the White Walkers in Game of Thrones. They will be out there in the snow, in the rain, to get the Tories, because that's <laughs> what they want. Uh, and there's hundreds of them, uh, and they mutate. <laughs> terrifying. Like they terrifying. Oh, I love my Game of Thrones, and I, I'm re-watching the whole thing from the beginning, because it's on Sky at the moment. Um, but that's what it's like. Uh, and they've taken over local parties. They're very active in my party in Harlow, the Labour Party down momentum. So, um, what on earth would they want to give the Prime Minister a free pass and get the government back on track? Right. Nick, do you think it's going to pass? I, I think Rob is absolutely right in terms of percentages. I, I, I would err towards it not passing. Yeah. Uh, the, the numbers are very difficult. Um, let's assume that 25 uh, Conservatives don't... I mean, that's on top of, remember, this Remain cohort that still aren't available. Yeah. Um, you have to replace those with Labour. You've got to get the DUP on side. Um, so I think the numbers are, are extraordinarily tough right now. There's possibility. With the, the, it's when Labour bring forward this, this uh, so-called uh, second referendum amendment, I, I am very interested in this because it basically says... If the deal has, and I understand it was a bit, um, that the, the, when it was uh, bounced, uh, when it was announced into the, in the Sunday papers, that it caused some consternation amongst the SNP, etc., um, because they very much saw it as, you're going to make us for, vote for, a, a, uh, for the deal, subject to, mm. and we don't actually believe in Brexit at all. I'm sorry, but I, I, I digress. But if, if, you're, if, you're, if you're saying to your Labour MPs, uh, you can vote for the deal subject to a second referendum, then if you just logically drop off that conjunction bit of it, then maybe it gives people permission. It's saying, well, you're saying I can vote for the mm. deal. Well, mm. I'm just going to drop this second bit. I, I don't know. I, I'm probably reading too much into it. I suspect that in as much as our discipline, sorry, conservative discipline is broken down in terms of the way, I think it starts to really break down for Labour as well. So I don't, I think you're uh, Rob's absolutely right. Labour are out to kill us in terms of the front bench, but maybe the discipline will start to be uh, discreet. In terms of the Labour MPs uh, on the Labour side, what do you think about? I mean, I talked to Lisa Nandy this week, who's in the marketplace for supporting the mm. deal, but she said to me, "Look, after conversations, personal conversations with the Prime Minister, where I've made clear to her, I, uh, she said, yes, I'd like to give Parliament a role in the future trade deal, but not a vote.' And Lisa says, "No, I need a vote. I need a, a seat at the table, just like the DUP do. Thank you very much. And mm. so does Parliament. Why shouldn't Parliament have a, a, an actual?" 
a, a vote mandated by the Prime Minister on the political declaration at some point in the future, or rather on the future trade deal. Do you think that's a good idea? Is that one way of unlocking those Labour votes? Well, if we were to repeat the situation that we're in right now, then absolutely, let's have meaningful vote <laughs> uh, mark two, um, because that what it, that's what it is. It's say, let, let's run that through to say, OK, uh, at the stage that a future relationship is agreed, knowing that we are then stuck in the backstop... MPs will have to vote. So either it's a spurious meaningful vote, because basically either you're going to have to say we're happy stuck in the backstop or we're going to have to accept the future relationship in which case all it is is a dipping of everyone's hands in the blood in that terrible Westminster phrase. Mm. Uh, Or it's something that actually basically means that we are just going to head to deadlock once again in that period. So I think there will be a great deal of hesitancy because in the same way as we knew, you know, you've got to plot it out for now. What are the circumstances? How might it be used one way or another? Let's not um, just embrace this idea that every time we introduce a new parliamentary mechanism, it works in a really easy to understand way and in a way that's manageable within the political debate. So I would say huge caution, game it out first, before you give any of that kind of concession. Well, I, I do think if the meaningful vote doesn't get through, then I think actually you'll get you'll have the indicative votes. Either the David Linton said this last yeah. week, or yeah. uh, the Ben Amendment type thing will pass. Yeah. And if that happens, then the whole game changes because um, then we've got a very good chance of common market two point naught coming, and. Particularly, I, and I do think a lot of Labour people would vote for it. I think it would be a total different. What dynamic. sort of numbers, Rob? Do you think you'll get for that? Um, so I've heard well, actually, you get more than a hundred Labour. Is that, um, is that I think too much? If, if once the second referendum thing is gone, where else are a moderate going to go? Um, and um, I think actually, um, potentially, you'd get senior Labour people because it wouldn't be a government thing. Uh, it's not about. So I think actually a lot of them would vote for a common market because you can justify that to your constituents. I, once I explain to my constituents that you get most of the you out of the political union, yeah. you're out of um, um, you're out of the CFP, the the, the cap, uh, you're out of the ECJ, but you uh, um, still protect jobs and the economy because you're part of the European Economic Area. When, when I explain that to people, they don't mind that because they say. Hollowers and say, well, particularly the old ones who say, well, we voted for a common market. That's why we called it common market 2.0. Yeah, but Rob, isn't yeah. a big, big problem with your solution freedom of movement? Yeah, I've been looking forward to that question because I knew you'd ask me. Well, I guess my duty. Uh, I'm yeah, sure Nikki would as well. No, I mean, it's a massive flaw, it, isn't it? Well, it isn't because, it, okay, it's not purest absolute freedom of movement. I accept that. But Article 112, 113, 114 of the EFTA things say, you can have a break on freedom of movement. You can stop freedom of movement if there are important societal, economical, environmental circumstances. And there is precedent in the thing. So I think you can go to people and say, it's not everything, I'm not denying that, but actually there is a proper break on, on freedom of movement. One thing which we don't do, which we could do as well, is that if people come here for work and they haven't got jobs, you're entitled to remove them as a, as a country after a few months, three months. And other countries do that, by the way, in the EU. So, But there is a important measures to deal with freedom of movement in certain circumstances. And you're out of all the crap that people didn't want. I, I voted to stay in, but I was a reluctant Remainer. I'm, I believe in alliance of democracies, but I believe the EU was undemocratic. I've always felt that. And it was very hard for me 
that referendum whole thing because my heart was with leave my head said uh, um, to remain and this to me is the is the answer because you're out of all the political stuff that everybody hated the ECJ the, the political union the home affairs all that sort of thing Norway why not be in a part of an alliance of democracies with three of the most prosperous countries Norway Switzerland Iceland why why not um, provide a geopolitical balance be part of EFTA to the rest of the European Union. I wish this had been a plan A, to be honest, let alone the we and by the way, you have much more say you can single market stuff has to be unanimous. There's Norway and Iceland have derogated from something like four hundred acts between them. And so there is a lot more uh, you do take back control, not completely in the way they wanted, but whereas with the backstop you're stuck in all this EU business forevermore, potentially, without any voice, any veto, any vote. Um, EFTA allows you to have that, um, but without all the political stuff. So it, to me, it's the right way. But would it, uh, we keep being told it would split the Tory party, though, don't we? I mean, Nikki, well, you, you, you're aware of this. Well, I, I think the point that Rob made earlier about, you know, Labour's front bench won't come to the PM on the deal. In the same way, I think, yes, if you can get 100 Labour MPs because it's, you said it's not the government's deal, that's at the point of the vote. So assuming that the strategy is then to say to the Prime Minister, here is a majority, admittedly it's only made up of maximum two-thirds Conservative, one-third Labour, because SNP, Plaid Cymru, they're not going to come over, Lib Dems, they're all second... They were, I think, irrespective of whether it's logically possible, they'll always back second referendum. Then it's for the PM to say whether or not she could go with it. But let's say she did, she would lose that, that, that hardcore, the, the same ERG cohort, let's say 110, 115 minimum, are not going to back this. No, but so they're not going to. So, whatever you do yeah. in the Tory party, whatever deal you come up with, supposing my one's crap and you come up with another one, half the Tory party won't vote for it. So, it doesn't. And they are getting the, the, the hardcore, they are principal people, actually. I genuinely. Often you think your heart is with some of the stuff they say, but not all. But they primarily want to leave with no deal. They want a clean break completely. That would split the other half of the Tory party. So whatever solution you do, you're not going to make everyone happy. And this has been the problem, by the way, in my view, because the Prime Minister tried to please everyone, but ended up pleasing no one. And I would have rather she just said, this is my view, mm. and mm. this is the way we're going to do you, you like it or lump it. And... Um, that hasn't happened. So she's pleased. Try. You were saying she was trying to please the Brexiteers in the early days, and then the Dominic Grieve stuff came through. In the end, the, the Brexiteers all fell out with her, and so now the. And then for some reason, you've. I don't know how she's done it, but alienated people like Sam Gima and yeah. all these hardcore ultra Remainers who want a second referendum on our part, ten or fifteen of them, or whatever. So, but you would get a, a, a significant amount of the Tory Party. I think if there's nothing left on the table other than the Morehouse compromise, which is unlikely to be accepted by the EU, that or a second referendum, what are they going to choose? They will choose the after option. Oliver Letwin says that the party just won't split because he says it's got this innate so, sort of sense of loyalty. Yeah, is that uh, well, right? I mean, Nikki's not yeah, convinced. No, I'm, I'm sorry. My frustration with Oliver Letwin is this is the man that the chief whip consulted time and time again and sort of co-opted almost as some sort of substitute minister. Um, uh, you know, and, and many things were ruled out on Oliver's say-so 
again contributing to the situation that we are now oh, in. Right. And therefore, I'm sorry that when Oliver Letwin comes forward or something, I'm not particularly minded to say that is the perfect well, judgment. I have a. I was Oliver <laughs> Letwin's head of office um, in opposition under Ian <laughs> Smith and, and David Cameron for five years. I've massive. In fact, I was in the op- office opposite. Directly opposite. Were you there when he was chased for the blood, blood, bloodhounds? No, sir, I, I missed that uh, moment. But <laughs> How I about when he took the documents. In I the was bin. there when he had the burglars coming to his house. <laughs> oh, <laughs> yeah. Um, Not actually there, but yeah, that's another story. <laughs> no, I wasn't getting to that. But he, I think he's an amazing man. He reads books in ancient Greek for fun while I might be watching X Factor or something. <laughs> I mean, he's a pretty extraordinary individual. And. Uh, so I think uh, I've never said a bad <laughs> word about him. Wait, can we just ask you though, Rob, yeah. straight up about the Prime Minister? Today she has talked about you know the yeah. very idea of quitting. I mean, she put it out there for the first time properly as Prime Minister. I could not live with a delay longer than June. What do you think is next for Prime Minister? I mean, has she now basically written her own sort of political death warrant? I mean, whatever happens now, isn't it the case that there's going to be a Tory leadership this summer? There, there was a one scenario where if she'd won the last meaningful vote, she could have had a kind of victory lap. You know, very few Prime Ministers have a victory lap. Tony Blair had one, I remember. And he went up and down the country, he was given a bit of time to go. She could have had a victory lap this summer, maybe left in the autumn, a hero's sort of farewell, the woman who delivered Brexit, and the party conference is off, and then you have the Tory leadership contest. Now, it looks like Surely there'll be a Tory leadership contest this summer, whatever happens next week. Isn't that right? And shouldn't it be right? I think... I mean, she did say um, that she was going to go before the election. At the know when there was... Yeah. In the 1922. But I think events have made it very likely that she's... That either she's going to pack it in or something will happen. Um, I think people will still wait till the bulk of the Brexit stuff is over because I can't see how you can have a new leader in the middle of all this. I suspect that it's sooner rather than later. To this summer, you think? Uh, the way people were talking, and it doesn't matter which wing of the party, uh, you know, it's either loyalists, remainers, leavers, whatever. I my feeling is that she's. Uh, I, I, I I think she's going to go soon. Uh, I think she might pack it in. I suspect that she regards it as her duty to try and get this through. And that's it. Because then. I think she is somebody minded. To, pub, uh, to do public duty and it's her whole reason for being that she because and who else is going to want to take this on you know so and then I think she'll probably it may be by the summer that in uh, that you have a, con- a contest beginning at least yeah, yeah. Nikki would you, do you believe it, her when she says she, when she threatened she would walk has she got it within her to walk a lot of people thinking well she said lots of things and tore them up again but today she made quite clear if there is an extent, a long extension, she won't be Prime Minister. Do you believe that? I, look, I, I, I find it... Uh, it is difficult to judge because I think that... Uh, look, I, I actually... you know, Often people say, oh, the, the PM said that, and she obviously didn't believe it. I think that when the Prime Minister says something, she absolutely believes it. But I also think that she's quite a pragmatic person. And, though, and in much the same way that when she's confronted with a situation, the variables as they then are, she looks at them and then goes, well, what are the possible routes out? Um, I guess it, it's sort of like... There, there isn't a sense of, like... But my ideal's not here, so I'm going to, you know. So, so I think that I don't know what the prime minister would do. I don't know what she would do in a situation of indicative votes, if something would get a majority. I don't know what she would do in in those situations. What I would say is that if um, 
that if there is a change, um, the number of the things that people will be crunching is uh, if we are at that stage in an implementation period, how to maximise the amount of time that any future leader would actually have to negotiate. Uh, secondly, when is the right timing versus a general election so that that Prime Minister can uh, bed in. Uh, I guess the third factor is actually in you know, much the same way as, as, as the operation I was part of bedded in over the summer of 2017. Summer is actually quite important because any new Prime Minister actually does need to start to use the levers of number 10 and really make that machine function uh, if you're going to make a, a use of that switchover. Just coming in, there's a great risk that actually it takes you a long time to get up and up and running, um, but I, won't, I, I don't know further than that. That makes a lot of sense to get it done by summer, to be mm -hmm. honest. Mm -hmm. Well, I think we've dealt with this section in my notes that is marked WTF happens now. <laughs> um, so I think we've just about got time for a quiz, which yeah, we uh, like a a quiz. this week Nicky is on... House of Commons speakers. Oh, God. Oh. What else? Um, yeah, Nikki won last time, I think. Wow. Why am I not surprised? No, no, yeah. but, but so I, I, the thing is, I think, I don't know many speakers. <laughs> <laughs> I, I, just to let you know, I was on LBC's, uh, Ian Dale used to do a quiz a long time ago, and I was, I think I had the world's worst performance on any of the show. <laughs> <laughs> it can't be as bad as David Lammy on, on Celebrity Mastermind. That, that is the all-time glory. <laughs> no, I was really, I think I got, I got, this was a few years ago, I think even Tom Brake beat me, and that was saying something. <laughs> <laughs> that is me. <Arch>. <laughs> Go on, Arjun. Right, just pipe in whenever. There's no real format to this. Um, so who was the first Speaker of the Commons that was officially recorded in the roles of Parliament? The first one ever? Yeah. Oh, my God, I'd, I've got no idea. That's a tough question. Weatherall. I've got no idea. Weatherall. <laughs> this is talking, what, 1,200 or something? 1300? 1376. <laughs> Good, Arch. Yeah. Good. Okay. Not easy, but Be easy. gentle. <laughs> so, who is the only speaker elected in the 20th century not to be a member of the governing party? In the 20th century? Elected, and they weren't a member of the governing party. So, time, elected as speaker? Or yeah, elected, elected as a speaker. So, hold on. So, Burko was elected in 2009, so well, that's had, not the 20th century. You've only had elections for speakers for... Um, Martin and not the governing Burko, party. Ah, was he George Thomas? No, was he? Did was he under the Tories, George Thomas, to start off with, and then went into the Labour government? I'm going to go for George Thomas in the early seventies. It's, it's a guess. Labour speaker. Any other guesses? Go on, that's it. Bessie Boothroyd. Oh, of course. Yeah, of course. Uh, she, she was so impartial that I yeah. couldn't remember what party yeah. she belonged to. Labour, <laughs> Labour MP became the first female speaker in 1992 with the help of 70 Tory MPs. Right. Yeah. Wow. Who did she beat? I wonder. I'd, I'd love to. I'll Google that later. Uh, who could she? I mean, who would have dared stand against Betty Booth? <laughs> anyway, go on. Uh, final question. Um, Nikki might know this. Um, what is Speaker Denison's rule? Let me know Ooh. if you need a clue. Oh, this sounds familiar. This really is this, sounds is familiar. Is this the same session, same question? Or all? Um, mm -hmm. I'll give you a clue. 
it's 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 a convention. Oh, what is well, it? it's kind of the answer. I've actually, heard this. <laughs> Come on, give us another clue. What sort of area is it? I'll, procedural? T- I'll tell you what. I'll go, yeah, it's procedural. I I I want the detail, but it's essentially the convention which guides the speaker on how to use their casting vote in the event. Ah, of a that you have to but how with the government? No, no, what, you oh, don't, sorry. no, no. Sorry, yeah. sorry. Yeah. No. The tradition is that you should vote uh, according to the status quo, but Erskine May further clarifies that the Speaker, as any MP, may vote as his conscience dictates. And we all know where this Speaker will go with that. So he does have that coach and horses oh, available yes. to him. Uh, there was a severe moment of pain last week where I thought we were actually in that situation. It was like, no, yeah, surely when it was, not. When it was two votes <laughs> yes. out with yes, uh, Hillary Benn. Because yes. I was convinced yeah. he, was go- he would have to vote with the government, no, but, yeah. but he didn't no, have he to. He may do as he wishes. So the status quo... Yeah, so usually you're made to, uh, meant to vote... Um, I can't remember the exact wording, but along, yeah. um, uh, but along the lines of you're meant to vote in the way that doesn't um, uh, that, that that sort of with the status quo, which which um, allows the Commons further opportunities to deliberate and find a way through. Oh. You yeah. always vote for further debate, yes. essentially. At least so, you know I tell yeah. you the truth. I told you I'm rubbish at quizzes. Oh, that's fascinating. Yeah. <laughs> that's <laughs> brilliant. brilliant. <laughs> I mean, this could come into I play. I didn't it? know yes. that. I, I naively had this lazy yeah. assumption you had to vote with the governing party. No, no. Um, oh. As as Nikki says, sort of with the status quo, always for further debate. Um, but that rider about your conscience. Well. I didn't know. I didn't know that about that. Oh uh, yeah, yeah, no. Yeah. I, I, I've been aware of it in government and painfully aware of it outside. <laughs> um, that wow. could really come into play, couldn't it? Okay. Well, that's unfortunately all we've got time for in what's been and is is still another momentous week. Um, let's finish uh, by hearing what Theresa May's good friend Damien Green thinks of the infamous Stop Brexit man who protests daily outside Parliament. Hello, can I ask how you're feeling about the vote yesterday? Uh, no, you can't, because you've just tried to shout over an interview I've done, like you do everyone else. I did, uh, I was singing. You are the biggest wanker. Oh, hello. Is that a bit of abuse this morning? You're not having a good day then, sir? Well, you just called me a wanker. I think that was a piece of analysis. Political analysis. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more and is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.